so so here here here's just a far out idea. Okay. But when we when we had um, <clears throat> when we had Kent on, we talked a lot about Kent stuff, but we actually didn't talk a lot about the patterns very much. Right. We could do a follow a follow up and actually talk about the patterns. and welcome to episode 24 of the Ruby Rogues. Uh, this week, we have on our panel, uh, Avdi Grimm. Good morning, and today I am at the Null Object Pattern. <laughs> we also have James Edward Gray. We've been hearing complaints that people do not like the awkward introductions. How awkward is that? Yeah, I feel awkward about that. Uh, we also we have... have an awkward silence now. What? Well we also, done. We also have Josh Susser. Uh, yeah, hey, this is Josh Susser, so you can recognize my voice. That's the entire point of this awkward self-introduction. Yeah, and I'm Charles Maxwood. Uh, this week I opened registration for my testing Ruby and Rails course, as well as my advanced Ruby on Rails course. So go to Rails Rookies and sign up. All right, so we're going to go ahead and let uh, Josh introduce our topic today, and then we'll get started. Okay, so I'm calling this episode Part 2. <laughs> the, uh, no, we, we had a great time talking with Kent last week, but there was a ton of material in the book that we didn't get to address. We had too much fun uh, talking with uh, Mr. The Amazing to uh, spend too much time uh, going into detailed conversations about the patterns. So we had a nice uh, hole in our schedule this week, so we're going to keep uh, keep working on the on the patterns from the best practice pattern, small talk best practice patterns book, and see if we can have a little more in-depth conversation about them, um, and uh, you know what uh, that could tell us about programming in Ruby. Any, uh, did I miss anything, James? I think it was perfect. Okay. Do, do I need a definition? <laughs> <laughs> for a definition yes. for SQL. Yes. No. Define James. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think I want to reopen that class. <laughs> hey, go ahead and uh, create a module to monkey patch him. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that, yeah that's our, our best practice there. Okay, so uh, James, I think you probably have uh, the most copious notes for all the, all the different patterns. So why don't you pick our first pattern to, for us to get started with? Okay, so I'll try to pick something I didn't talk about last week. Um, I one of the uh, earlier sets of patterns in the books that I liked, uh, and I didn't write down the exact name. Sorry, uh, it's actually it's something about a, a conversion constructor, and then the other one is just the uh, conversion method or something like that. But basically, the idea is, you know, sometimes we have a conversion method on a class. So, like to give an example, in Ruby we have. Um, uh, dot two a you know to convert something to an array and you can do that on anything that uh, has a numerable mixed into it um, but sometimes we do uh, conversion constructors like a good example I can think of there is uh, date right you do date dot parse and you pass in a string mm -hmm. which is really just a conversion from a string to a date object right and what I loved about the synergy of these two patterns is they tell you which when you do which one when you do a uh, method on the object itself that just converts and when you do a conversion constructor 
And before anybody asks, no, Ruby does not follow those rules. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, so, so the, uh, these are converter method and converter constructor method yes, in those Kent's yeah. book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was I was reading those, and, and one thing that stuck stuck out to me, and I, I kind of had to work through it, was that uh, you know you have the converter method, which is you know converting something into something else that you call on the object, and um, it, it really made me think because you know you have like two s uh, that converts something to a string, and it, it made me wonder, okay, well then is two s a bad idea because then you know the integer or whatever has to know how to con- how to build the string and that's not really its job but at the same time when i was thinking about it i was i was thinking well if i have my own object and i want to convert it to a string then it has to know how to build a string to put it together so that it can print it out and so um it, w- it was really interesting to see okay so um in these cases you know maybe 2s does make sense and in these other cases you know it really doesn't where rather than saying, you know, this object to this other object, it makes more sense to say this object construct from this other object. Right. And Kent's actual rule for the conversion was uh, if you're converting to an object with basically an identical interface, uh, then it's okay for that object to just go ahead and have a to whatever on it. Um, if you're converting to an object with a completely different interface, um, then that's better handled through the constructor conversion. Um, so to give examples of that, um, depending on how we take the meaning of identical interface, I think things like 2A and even 2Set from the standard library are probably okay because you use those on enumerables and you're getting an enumerable object back. Uh, so and as far as them being, you know, still being Ruby's idea of a collection, that's probably okay. Um, but the other case of uh, date parse, right, you take a string and then you get back a date. So it has a completely different interface, the object that's getting returned. Uh, so that's more correct using the conversion method. But as Chuck already stated, there's plenty of places in Ruby where... Uh, we don't follow that convention. For example, integer to string uh, and stuff does not really follow that. Right. But at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of things out there that use the to string. So example, one example is if you're printing to the console or something, you have to know how to convert the object to a string. And it makes more sense for the object to know how to convert itself to a string than it does for the string to know how to convert every object in your system to a string. And so um, the other rule that he has is there is only one reasonable way to implement the conversion. And for, for me, you know, the two string in, in most instances, you know, it's, it's much more reasonable to put that on the class that you're implementing as opposed to trying to make string uh, aware of the structure of that class and how to convert it itself. I agree with that. You know, you, you, you don't want to educate string about all the different kind of things that might want to be stringified. Uh, however, if you look in um, in Rails, there's this um, oddity that crept in 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 the early days of um, passing a symbol that named a kind of format that you wanted to convert something into for the string. So if you have a date, you can call 2s and pass in a symbol, which is uh, you know, a db, you know, colon db. 
so it'll format the the date for the database or uh, you can pass in short or long or what have you and it will come out with different formats and that um that i i guess that uh tacking that onto 2s was um, not too egregious I, I would have rather have seen that as uh you know some sort of uh you know format method it seems like that's overloaded US a lot. I agree, and I think one of the reasons I don't really care for things like that is I love it when I can uh, replace the object and and not change the actual call. Like uh, for example, I use uh, includes uh, include question mark a lot because it's on array, it's on hash, whatever, and and so if I swap out the data structure, it just still works. But if you do something like that to two S, you know, start tacking symbols onto it. Then if you call that on anything else, it just blows up, you know, for the wrong number of arguments. So. Yeah, I, th- right. I think that's, uh, you know, Ruby tends to, or at least there's a style of Ruby programming where uh, people tend to overload existing methods rather than create new methods. Uh, do, do, you th- do you think that there's a, um, a resource crunch for method selectors? I don't know. That's a good question. There's a scarcity of potential me- method names? Maybe there's a scarcity of good method names. Uh, well, okay, we can agree on that. <laughs> so, Josh, I think you said method object was one of your favorite patterns in the book. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, so method object. What, what page is that on? I'm looking for that right now. Um, it's uh, page 34. We don't have David here to intone chapter and verse for us. <laughs> <laughs> Turn it back. Hey, hey. Page 34, section 12. Okay, so method object. Uh, This answers the question, how do you code a method where many lines of code share many arguments and temporary variables? So this was, I think, a fascinating... uh, This is probably, I think, it's the most fascinating write-up of a pattern in the book because there's this huge history behind what happened here is that there trying to refactor a giant method in the middle of a different class, in in the middle of a class, uh, breaking it apart into different pieces that can communicate with each other uh, was too messy and intrusive to the rest of the class. Would you say that's a good summary, James? Sure, yeah. It's just I'm trying to, you know, okay. So So the point is that you isolate the functionality of that method in a separate object entirely where it can use instance variables in that object to communicate between the different pieces of the method code as you refactor it around. Uh, I, I, you know, part of the problem is just sharing state. And so the, so the, yeah, think about it this way. You've got a giant method uh, with, that has you know, eight or ten local variables in it or temporary variables. Um, and you want to do method extract refactorings on it, and you don't want to be passing around uh, arguments all over the place because that's making... You, know, you have things that were temporary variables in the, in the method. Turning them into parameters that you're passing to extracted methods makes it much harder to refactor that method. So if you just... Tur- Pull it out, put it in, an, in a separate class, turn it into an object, and all those locals in the 
in the method become instance variables in the method object, then the refactoring becomes much simpler because you're not having to massage your code around as much. You're you're moving it around instead. Um, right. You can so you I, can quickly just like do a you can do compose method on any chunk of it and right. and for the most part it'll just work because because it's all sharing same state. Right. And so you know, there's a couple potential outcomes of this. Uh, you know, one is you just you have this refactored method object and you keep using it, um, and and that's a perfectly fine outcome. But the other thing is that you can uh, you can do a lot of transformations that end up simplifying things enough that you've you've reduced it to a form where it could be pulled back into the original class in a much simpler form. And I'm, I don't think Kent talked about that in in his write up. Yeah, that was really the aha moment for me when I was reading that pattern was um, he said, you know, he, he kind of admits in the example, you know, I was looking at this and I didn't really know what to do and I was stuck, but I just knew it was too much going on. So I decided, well, I, I don't have a better idea, so I'm extracting this, you know, into a method object. And then once he had done the uh, the extraction, he was like, oh, well, now I see. And and then he just was able to make things so much cleaner, you know, because he had got it out of there. He had he basically decoupled it in his mind, you know, from the the mess of everything. And then he was like, oh, well, this is just simple object-oriented programming. And he started, just like Avdi said, using the, you know, the tried-and-true tool, composed method, you know, and, and splitting things up. And then it was cleaner. And, and I think you're right, Josh, that eventually you can realize, you know what, this actually is something else, and it evolves into something else. But that was kind of the whole point to me of breaking it out, was that you free your mind to think about it as something separate and, and treat it that way, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I thought that that was just a really beautiful application of object orientation. Actually, one more, one more note about that, about that pattern. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that really that, that sprung out to me is um, is is one of my other favorite programming books talks about that uh, working Michael Feathers working effectively with legacy code. Uh, that's that's one of the patterns for getting a nasty method under test um, in the first place. You know, one of those one of those chicken and egg. I I can't test this until I pull it out, but I can't pull it out without putting tests over it. Solutions um, is that that same. Um, pattern and pulling it out into a class um, and making all the uh, making all the the temporary variables instance variables yeah it, it does make a lot of sense you know where you're basically giving somebody else the job of making that happen because if, if you are tracking all of that state in in temporary variables and things I, I think it really is indicative of the need for something like that it's it's not just that your code is messy you know it's it's a code smell that has has a solution here. And uh, what we also keep bringing up composed method, and I really, really liked that uh, that approach to things. It, just because um, I'm trying to remember who it was at uh, Rocky Mountain Ruby Conference. Um, I think it was like the first talk he was talking about um, who, who's an API designer, you know, and like five people raised their hands. And then he said, wrong, you're all API designers. And, and if you want a clean API, and we're not just talking about the API that you expose to people who are going to be, um, using, even if it's a, a library, you know, exposing certain public APIs, but the private API is something that you have to deal with as you build on your project. 
and uh, the composed method really made a lot of sense because ultimately what you're doing then is you're being highly descriptive as you build out your um, your application from the top down. Yeah, I think composed method is probably one of the most important patterns in the book, and I kind of spoke about this a little bit in our last episode, but if you only learn one thing, definitely sit down and, and learn composed method because... Uh, as Kent basically said, you know, it's your basic tool of, of composition, which is the key. But my favorite part about it is it allows me to dive into the code and think, I'm going to want to do this abstract thing. And in order to do this abstract thing, I would need to do these five concrete steps. And I just write those steps down, making up method names for them as I go. And then I go fill in those methods later, you know, and it, it, I find it much easier to program that way. Yeah, if no one else has anything to, to run across, the section that I kind of got excited about was collections, just because there was so much in common with Ruby. Um, I agree. Big, big, big surprise. Right. Yeah. Big surprise there. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. The Ruby collection stuff was just lifted from Smalltalk and then expanded, but... Yeah, you won't hear me complain about that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's really interesting. When I first started uh, with Ruby and with Rails, um, I wound up doing a lot of this stuff, you know, by hand coding the the loop. So I just have array dot each do, and then I'd have some uh, like a sum variable that I'd set to zero beforehand, and then I just loop through and add everything on. And uh, and if I had a few people point out inject. And uh, that became my favorite method for like a month. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just, just things like that. I mean, just really understanding the powerful uh, interface that you have to these these objects. And, and it's everything from the, the each or in, in Smalltalk's case, the do, um, all the way down to uh, inject or collect or map or um, I'm trying to remember what all of them are. But, you know, if, if you go and look at the innumerable uh, documentation, for Ruby, and you realize that you can do this on arrays or hashes, then you start to really understand just what a powerful interface you have to these collections of objects and, and what you can do with them. I kind of like the um, the small talk do syntax um, as opposed to each, uh, just because uh, I think each tends to suggest iteration over a collection. Um, which can sometimes box you in in your thinking a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, just the idea of, you know, do is basically, you know, visitor. It's basically apply this to yourself. Um, apply this this bit of code to yourself or, or to your elements. But, but it's saying absolutely nothing about what you are. And, uh, and you know, you can have, you know, maybe you, you can have things that aren't, collections that you can have things that are trees you can have things that aren't collections at all um you know maybe it iterates maybe there's some places where it makes sense instead to to go through a subset of the of an object's attributes instead of instead of going through some collection um you know maybe it's maybe it's things that are pulled off a stream um there are just you know so many options for um for what that can mean and it's it's and it's a really powerful um way of thinking about it yeah mm -hmm. I, I i find it amusing that in small talk you say you know collection do each and in ruby you say collection each do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, but let's face it, if we rename Ruby's each to do, then we're going to have do-do. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true parent. Dog.all.do-do. One of the things I liked in that in that collection section uh, is the uh, collection accessor method. Um, yes, that's I page ninety six. I love it, but it comes out much more beautiful in Ruby, doesn't it? Does it? Yes. It yeah. Does. Well, sm yeah. Smalltalk doesn't have special syntax for accessing collection elements. They use at the, the textual message at and at put. Uh, so yeah, I love the the square brackets stuff in Ruby. That's nice that you can. Redefine that yourself in your own classes. Maybe I'm thinking of a different case, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. So collection accessor method is um, when uh, you have an object that has uh, that has collections. Uh, you have an object that, that has, has an attribute, um, which is some collection of object. Right. Um, and, um, and, but instead of just exposing that collection... Um, and saying, okay, if you want to, um, you know, I, I, I have a knapsack, you know, and if you want to add things to my knapsack, you can just say me dot knapsack dot, uh, you know, put dot, you know, uh, insert, uh, some object, uh, you actually say, uh, you actually say, I have a, I have a method called add to knapsack, which you give an, an object. And so you, you, um, you supply explicit methods for um, adding or removing elements from a member collection. And I really like doing this. I think it keeps things nicely encapsulated. Um, and it really, really opens things up to, to extension uh, or you know, to, to changing the semantics in the future in a way that directly accessing member collections doesn't because you can, collect, you can, you can add validations on what you put in it can uh, react. It can have have uh, you know sort of events that happen when you put certain objects into the collection, um, and uh, and all kinds of stuff like that. So you're right, Avdi, and I, I was thinking of something different. Although what I was thinking of is related. Um, I do like what you just said though about you know encapsulating the collection, and then that way if you need to do something to an object as it's going into the collection or something like that, it's trivial to do. You know uh, things like that, but. Uh, the one I was thinking of is actually in the state chapter and it's called enumeration method, um, which is basically they tell you just define do, you know, so that, uh, it, you know, define do for that, that collection so that they can run over it. But I was, um, and basically he was talking about the reason to do that is to give them read only access to a collection without exposing the collection to modification and stuff. But that's the one I think comes out significantly more beautiful in Ruby because uh, we can just call to enum and return an enumerator, and then they get access to all the enumerators in a read-only fashion, right? So they basically get a read-only version of the collection. Is that in Ruby 1.8 or just Ruby 1.9? It's uh, available in Ruby 1.8 if you load the enumerator library. I think it's enumerator. Uh, in Ruby 1.9, it's built into the core. Okay. Hmm. All right. I'm going to jump in um, on another uh, a pattern that, that real quickly, it was a really simple one, and that was the constant method. Um, yeah, and, good one. And really, I mean, it's really, really simple because it's just a, a method that represents some value in the system. But 
um, rather than use some magic number, uh, I really liked it because it communicates what it is. And so if, if you have like some maximum number of uh, cookies in the cookie jar, then you can uh, set up a method that's max cookies. Um, and then you, you know what that maximum is. And you don't have to worry about, oh, is it 20? Is it 30? Because we had this meeting. We discussed it. You just redefine it in, in that method. And you don't have to worry about it anymore. And it's highly communicative. This is what this is. It's not 20. It's the maximum number of cookies. I, I like that one because um, Ruby's constants are sometimes weird to me as far as, like, how they inherit and stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. you, when you have the method, you just know that you can override that method, and that's the way it is, you know. Yes, I, 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 far, I far prefer using uh, methods and understandable inheritance to using uh, hardware constants. The, the other thing about constants in Ruby is that they're not. <laughs> you, you, what, what, what's that old chestnut? Variables don't, constants aren't. Um, the, so the, it, the variables in Ruby are just, you, know, you can still assign to them. You can use set constant methods, things like that. So the, I, I, I like the constant method. In, in Ruby even, because one, inheritance is understandable, but two, it's not something that anyone can come along and clobber just by monkey patching your constant. So it's a, it's, it's a different beast, and I think it actually acts like constants more than Ruby constants do. Yeah, well, it, it changed my programming pa- uh, patterns. So that's why I liked it, is because I would tend to just put the magic number in there and assume that people knew what it meant. And now I don't. I have one. Um, th- so the, uh, page 70, for those of you reading along, uh, this is pluggable selector. And it's a close kin pluggable block, which immediately follows. Uh, so this is uh, something that people who have programmed used, using active record uh, should be familiar with this because uh, the, we see this a lot in uh, like the validation callbacks that you put on your, me- on your model class where you can say uh, validates and then you give it a um, a symbol, which is the name of a method in the class that gets called to do validation. So the, the pluggable selector is, okay, you want to have some code that gets run conditionally one way or the other, but you don't want to litter your object with a bunch of conditionals all throughout it. If you drop a name of a method in there and all those places where you would otherwise have conditionals, you just do a self uh, send um, and, to, you know, and send yourself that method. One of my favorite places to use that is when I'm designing a state machine. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, state machines are just awesome. And I, we need to talk about that at some point. But um, it, whenever I'm designing a state machine... I usually just have some variable that tracks state, and then when I want to transition to a new state, I just throw a new symbol in that variable because that's the method I'll be calling next. You know. Right. So you send yourself the state method to to do that thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I love okay. the the uh, the highlight that I, I I just realized I highlighted a section of this at, at the very end. Uh, Kent says uh, the interesting observation. Um, is that so? They've they've got this this um, th- this example of instead of having a uh, of of points, you know, points in space, um, 
And instead of having separate classes for centered relative point and top left relative point, etc., um, you can just you can capture the uh, the the that one little bit of variability which where the the point is is um, is relative to um, as one of, as this pluggable selector. Uh, so you just create an object that has you know the the um, the you know what it's relative to as its pluggable selector, and then uh, you avoid these really big uh, class hierarchies that that only differ on one point. Right. Yeah. So so I think that's a that's a pattern that uh, I think a lot of Rails developers are comfortable using uh, code that's been built that way, um, and even uh, playing along with the pattern. So I think a lot of Rails developers have built uh, validation methods that they can use the pluggable selector pattern with. Uh, and I, I like that. I, I'm, I really prefer doing that rather than throwing a little, you know, the Lambda in um, instead, which is this next pattern pluggable block. Uh, but I, but I, I haven't seen uh, a lot of like, application code within, within Rails where people are doing this sort of trick. So I think that it's, it's worth uh, thinking about as you dig into building uh, building models with variable business logic. So, so pluggable block is the next pattern after this, and that's just, like I just hinted at. There's you know, when you do a validate method in, um, or like a before validation hook in your active record model, you can either give it a symbol for the you know the pluggable selector, or you can just pass in a lambda that will get executed instead, and. I th I think that that's um, I I don't like that as much most of the time because it doesn't play well with inheritance and if you want or polymorphism and if you want to be able to create a subclass of um, of your model that does something slightly differently in that validation I think it's easier to deal with the code when it's in a full fledged method that you deal with with pluggable selector right because you can overwrite the method and use super if you need to. Yeah, the, yeah. The, you have all sorts of flexibility that you have in in ordinary object-oriented programming, and as soon as you start passing around blocks, you're essentially in the realm of functional programming, which has its own ways of structuring code, and you're going to start getting some tension when you want to dig into that block and do, you know, refactor it or do things in in a different way. Uh, right, but don't you don't you still have uh, options? I'm not sure if this falls directly under pluggable block, but uh, where effectively you uh, you can pass a block at the at the end of a method call, so you have some method call do and then a block there, and and that'll also uh, change the way that that method behaves. And so you know you can see this in other things that you build as long as it has a yield statement in it somewhere. Uh, yeah, so so that's a that's a different um, pattern. Uh, the pluggable block is really about just um, avoiding creating a lot of specialized subclasses that are only varying in a very small way. Uh, so this is just let's drop in a block that contains the variation or the variability. Um, it, so that that's great. It's just a different way of doing it from the from the pluggable selector. The thing about pluggable block is that you can inject code into another class if you're doing it that way. You can you can set a variable for the block. It's interesting where Ruby has blocks as such a you know prominent part of the language, and yet uh, pluggable block is kind of underused. I mean, we have 
We have uses of blocks that are very common, the iterators, uh, DSLs, and things like that. Uh, but I do use pluggable block a lot, uh, where I'm like, oh, these things are almost identical, except they do some special thing in the middle, you know? And whenever I think of that, I, I do a pluggable block. I have the, you know, extract it out, pass it in the, as a block, and then run the code around it or whatever and call the block at the right time, you know? But I don't mm -hmm. see that a lot in Ruby code. Like, I'm surprised how much I don't see that. So, so I have a theory about why that is. Yeah, would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. <laughs> so the, it comes down to how collections are sorted, and and in Ruby you have a you have a sort by method on on array. So you can just say, okay, great, I got an array, and I call this sort by method, and I pass a block, and the the use of the block is ephemeral. It's a it's a it's a transient thing. You you sort the collection, and you get a new collection or a new array out of there that's sorted, but it doesn't retain the sortedness uh, for, for any length of time. It's just, it's just another array that happens to be in that order. But in Smalltalk, you have a class called Sorted Collection, which has a block as part of its state, and anything you add to that collection will get sorted into the contents in the correct position. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sidetrack here. There are a small portion of us that have been fighting a fight on Ruby Core mm -hmm. literally for years now to get mm -hmm. RB tree added to Ruby standard library. And RB tree, it stands for red black tree. It's a binary tree that, uh, mm -hmm. but, but it's basically exactly what you described. RB tree has a sorting to it. Mm -hmm. And when you put objects in, you know, they're because it's a binary tree, it balances the tree and that keeps it and sorted. Right. And so if you iterate or something like that, you, you iterate in order. Um, and in fact, um, Ruby standard library was actually meant for this because Ruby has a set class in the standard library. And when you load set, it checks your to see if it can find RB tree. And if it can, it uses RB tree. And if it can't, it falls back to a much dumber implementation based on Ruby's hash. Um, so it, it, it's such a great compliment, and it's a great uh, it's a great all-around general programming tool. And there there are those of us who have been trying to get it in the standard library for a very long time for basically the reasons you just described. What is what is the objection? Uh, that, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I I'm frustrated with the. Uh, that seems like a such a basic contain uh, uh, container. Yeah, the, one of the objections that's been raised recently, we've been fighting this argument again. It's basically a permanent uh, perma argument, and we've been fighting it again just last week. And one of the objections, uh, as of last week, is the name of the library is bad. That it's tied to the <laughs> algorithm that it uses, and so. I said, okay, let's just call it a tree. And they, they were like, that sucks. And so I'm not clear why tree sucks uh, and array oh. rocks and hash rocks. But yes, I would very much like to see this library added. And now that we've talked about it on the podcast, I'm definitely going to post a link to this section so everybody can go listen to it. Yeah, yeah hash, hash because... totally doesn't suggest its, uh, its implementation. Its algorithm, yeah, right, I... yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, that was one of the things I thought that was definitely a step down from clarity in Smalltalk. Smalltalk, the class is dictionary, which right. suggests you 
okay, great. You know, I got a name and a definition. Great. Or a, name, or a key and a value. Yeah, you look okay, up by uh, name, not by hash, hash value. But. So, so, so let, let, let me get back to my point, uh, which is that Smalltalk has a sorted collection with a block associated with it. And that block is a pluggable block on the, sort, on the sorted collection. And, and so I think that you just grow up with your basic data structures in Smalltalk. You learn about sorted collection and you internalize that pattern. But in Ruby, I can't think of many or even any examples where that block is something that um, that you keep around as state. Even even the places where you're using uh, magic pen style blocks, they don't they don't seem to hang around very long. Magic just, pen. Uh, that's that. That was a term coined by David Black a couple years ago. Uh-huh. It's it's. Uh, I don't know which uh, and the, what the name of the pattern is in here uh, in in Kent's book, but it's. Uh, it's sort of pluggable behavior, um, but it doesn't stick around as something that gets done over and over. Okay. For the most part, it's it's like file open. Okay. You know that, that would I guess that would be the around behavior in the small talk best pa- practice patterns. Kent um, also gives some great uses for set in this section, um, and I just mm-hmm. want to mention this on the podcast because too many people don't know about it. Ruby does include a set class. Um, it's in the standard library, so you can just require set, and you get set and sorted set both. Um, and uh, they're they're really great classes. Um, and people tend to use an array for these kinds of things, and really arrays suck at these kinds of things. And Kent actually goes into some of the reasons why uh, in his. Uh, set examples. So if you're if you're looking at at using a set uh, for set like behavior, or even some of the places where Kent recommends using a set, like he says, if you want a unique collection of objects, you convert to a set because by definition, that's a unique set of objects. You know, um, so uh, things like that. You should load Ruby set library, and that will give you like an, a method on array called two set. So then you can easily do the conversion and. There's methods for testing subsets and uh, classifying elements depending on which which way they fall. It's good stuff. So, so, so James, the, J- James, the the set operations that that in Smalltalk you use the class set for. Um, and by the way, set is the most overloaded word in the English language. So prepare to be confused <laughs> here. Uh, the the uh, uh, in in Ruby. Arrays do most of what set does in, in Smalltalk, and you even have the unique bang method on them to to make them unique, to you know to remove to remove duplicates. Is yeah, that, is that you, faster or slower than converting to a set? Generally, you, using a set will be faster because if you do any operation on an array, you're going to have to follow it up by a unique bang or something in order to, you know what I mean? So you're constantly retraversing that array because you got to ensure that you don't introduce a duplicate, right? Okay. Right. But, but, but arrays do intersection and union and, you know, comp, you know, the various composition uh, operations for sets. So the, I, I, I don't, you really use, I don't use sets very much in Ruby just because arrays seem to do the job just fine. And it's, it's simpler to me to only have to deal with one data structure type instead of two. So this gets into kind of an interesting uh, tug of war. And in, um, uh, it's even in Ken's book. Um, 
because he, uh, as I mentioned before, he says, you know, if you have a, uh, if you have a list and you want to guarantee there's no duplicates, he says, just convert it to a set. That's the fastest way to just guarantee, you know, a set doesn't have duplicates. So that's a way to guarantee it. Um, but then in other places, Kent takes the argument of, um, why doesn't Smalltalk have a stack or a queue? And he says, because you don't need them. The, uh, oh, I, I forget. What's Smalltalk's expandy array called? Ordered Collection, I think. Uh, ordered Collection. Yeah, yeah. Ordered Collection, uh, which is the equivalent of Ruby's array, uh, is that, you know, functions fine as a uh, stack or a queue, either one. Uh, so we just use that instead which is an interesting interplay. But I'm going to say, Josh, as much as I hate to say it, I think you're wrong about the set thing. Um, the, the set library in Ruby is really great. And um, the problem with using an array is, it's like I said, if you do anything where you put something else in the array, you're going to have to unique it again to make sure that you didn't put a duplicate in there, which means you're going to be traversing that collection all the time. And it adds baggage. You know, every time you got to do that, you have to keep that mental model of this This object is not enforcing the no duplicate criteria that I'm keeping in my mind. Instead is more like a, it's the whole conversation with the reader thing again, right? If I use a set, then you're showing this has no duplicates, right? It's a set. Okay, well, so so it, so in Active Record, do you think that a has many oper, or a has many association should return a set rather than an array? That's a good question. Um, it's a really good question. I mean, I guess no, because as much as I would like it to be so, uh, it's not true that it has to be unique in SQL unless the appropriate foreign key constraints are used, right? Right. I mean, well, you could define a really weird query on that, um, which which had duplicates in it, and for some cases that might actually be what you want. Well, the other question I have is, are sets ordered in Ruby? There is a, a sorted set uh, also that you get when you load the set library. And the sorted set, you can uh, set an ordering to, just like Josh was discussing. But frustratingly enough, frustratingly enough, and this is, this, I just remember what was, what was bugging me while I was reading this section in the book. Ruby does, as far as I know, does not have an ordered set, which is not a sorted set. Well, so, what would be the difference between an ordered set and a sorted set? A, an ordered set, um, it like like any set, um, it it would only let you put a, an object in um, uh, if it wasn't in there already. But it would keep the objects. It would guarantee that the objects would always be in the order that you insert them in. Oh, I see. So, if we wanted that, if we could win this fight on Ruby Core. So how many listeners do we have? Everybody go to Ruby Core and vote for adding RB tree to the standard library. <laughs> okay, that's James's public service announcement. <laughs> well, well, a tree a tree structure is actually very very handy and would probably be something that we we would all benefit from. And and you've you've enumerated a lot of the benefits there, so I'm not going to go into it, but you know, it, it's guess- it's worth discussing. It just occurred to me though that so so tree by default without RB tree, tree is implemented as um, uh, a hash, and I guess in one nine hashes have have ordering. So uh, I guess sets are implicitly implicitly ordered in in Ruby one nine. They are implicitly it. ordered in Ruby one nine because under the hood, if you do not have RB tree in your path, it defaults to a hash, 
and hash is yes ordered in Ruby one nine. So yeah, that's that's more of a mistake I think. But yes, I wish had explicitly ordered class class name. You know, like ordered set ordered ordered hash in Ruby one. Uh, just because that way we it would be easier to write um, backward compatible code because we could have that just be an ordinary hash in one nine, but then it would be a um, it would it would be a different sort of uh, beast in in one eight. Right, that's one of the problems with relying on hashes ordering. If you have to go across uh, Ruby versions, is you can't count on that. Order. Yeah, very subtly breakable. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else? Because we're we're about at that point where we need to start uh, doing the picks. I want to mention one more just because uh, I, I enjoyed this one. Um, this is all the way back in the behaviors chapter, so we're kind of skipping back in the book now. There's a pattern called intention revealing message. And when I read this one, I realized that I could actually define eras of my programming growth in when I did and did not understand this uh, pattern. Because before I understood it, if I saw a method somewhere that just had like, you know, a line of code in it and was only called one time, I would just reflexively inline that. Right, I would grab the body of the method, yank it out, and just stick it in line and remove the method uh, without ever thinking about it. And then I passed the threshold where I began to understand this pattern, and I realized that now I actually sometimes will create a method that's only used in one place that I extract a line into, and I'm doing it for this purpose right here, which is, um, in this case, he's he's highlighting something, but the code to highlight something because it's two colors is just a reverse on the colors, which doesn't, isn't very, it doesn't really tell you what it's doing. You know, it's, it's more of a implementation, implementation detail than a, uh, what he's actually doing is highlighting something. So he extracts it into a method and calls it highlight. And then you don't need a comment or anything like that because it tells you I'm highlighting something. So I think I can actually track my programmer growth by when I understood this pattern. Yeah, so, I, so, I had that one and the, what is it, the role name temporary variable? I, I don't remember exactly what the pattern's called, but, but something like that, where it's a similar thing, where this temporary variable, it's his job to, to do this thing or to keep track of this state or whatever. Right. So, so, so we all know that uh, you know, a comment is a lie waiting to happen, and an intention-revealing name is also a lie waiting to happen. Just because the comment is in the name of the method or the name of the variable doesn't mean that you don't have to pay attention to how it's spelled anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. But but the the great thing about the intention revealing message to me is that it's it's a way to specify. Like when I feel myself wanting to write a comment, I would much rather extract that code into a method. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or or write a test that. That explains what the comment would say. Well, and if, of those are, yeah. If you're refactoring the method, then you should be refactoring the name as well. Red green refactory name. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Avoid stuff. That's hilarious, though. I, I I definitely agree with what you're saying. That you know they can be you know misappropriated or or grow into other things. But you know it. That's true of any method in an object. I think. Yeah, but if you're being attentive about what you're communicating, then you'll recognize um, this says, you know, take cookies out of the cookie jar, where in fact it's dumping the cookie jar out. 
you know, and so you need to change the name to reflect what's going on. So, so I have, so I have uh, one last little quickie to slip in here, and that's about streams. And in in Ruby, uh, we have the Chevron, you know, the less than less than operator for arrays, and I think that that, for the most part, takes the place of uh, you know a huge case of what you use streams for in Smalltalk. Uh, Smalltalk ordered collections are okay, but the there was a fair amount of overhead in the implementation for uh, how they would grow. So streams were really how people would uh, put together uh, collections that a bunch of people had to add stuff to. And But in, in Ruby, we have the uh, array less than, less than uh, thing, and, and that seems to take the place of all the, all the uses for streams that I see Kent talking about in, in, the, in his book. So... It's an interesting pattern. The streams are kind of interesting because they can also be used, uh, well, like like if you need to put two collections together, right? Um, streams maybe have a slight win there, you know, but I guess in Ruby, if it's assuming it's an array or something, we can just, you know, array plus array and... And yeah. uh, and then if it's a hash, I guess we can just call merge. So yeah, it seems like we have other ways of doing those things. But uh, but the the idea of having a stream as a first class citizen in a language, I find kind of cool. Like you can do some really cool processing with like infinite streams, for example. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, that was definitely a, a big part of the Smalltalk data processing model, and you know, so you know, in Ruby, there's the I/O op, you know, class. That uh, it is very streamlike, and you know the I/O stuff in Smalltalk was just a subclass of stream because they were these you know infinite streams, and you're just always pulling something off of the off the head of the stream or pushing it onto the stream. So I yeah, Ruby really right. kind of brought the Ruby kind of brought the the pearl in in that regard. Yeah. I mean, because that's the, I mean the way Smalltalk does it is how pretty much I mean most. Most uh, carefully architected languages did it before was, you know, the idea that, you know, this this thing could be really, really big. We can't possibly process it all in memory. Um, and um, and so everything should be done as a stream. Um, every kind of operation should be done as a stream. And, and Perl was like, yeah, we can we can we can suck a whole file into memory. Why not? Um, which turned out to be incredibly convenient for the cases that it was true. It was just so much simpler. Uh-huh. Um, and, and and like. People take that stuff for granted now, but man, the first time I saw that, that Perl could do that, you know, could just suck a file in, into into a variable in in one line, it was like, you mean the strings aren't bounded? They just grow, <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't like make the the machine fall over and die when you do that. Um, <laughs> they're efficient. <laughs> so it, Ruby kind of that's that's the, the Perl and the the sort of pragmatic Perl influence of yeah, we can most of the time we can just play around with strings and it'll be easier. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the picks. Sorry to cut you guys off. Um, let's go ahead and have Avdi go first. All right. Um, so this, I think, is something that, that has been discussed in picks before, um, but it's got a new version coming out. VCR, the um, the the library for by Myron Marston for testing your apps interactions with external um, like REST APIs. Um, is uh, it's uh, it's on beta of its 2.0 release, and Myron has been blogging about some of the the uh, changes to it. 
um, and uh, there's some really nice changes um, coming out. Uh, some stuff with uh, making it a lot easier to, to customize how um, uh, HTTP requests are matched um, and played back and stuff like that. Um, this is an incredibly, incredibly useful, like, lifesaver library uh, for, for trying to do uh, repeatable tests um, at, a, at a high sort of integration level with uh, HTTP services. So uh, check, out, check it out. Check out some of the blogging that he's doing. Um, for a non-code pick, um, I have been sort of uh, trying out various uh, bookings systems lately. Uh, systems for to enable people to to like book a um, an appointment with me. So I do you know various uh, types of consulting, and I also, um, time permitting, I also will just do just uh, remote pair programming with people that want to do some open source work, um, and uh, I have been pretty disappointed in all the systems that I've tried. Um, the one that I'm using right now um, has caused me, I think, the least grief of all of them. So I thought I'd call it out. Um, it's called You Can Book Me. It's YouCanBook.me. Um, and uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's made me rage less than the others. So, uh, so there you go. We will now have to start booking our appointments with Avdi to record this show. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. All right, James, go ahead. Uh Okay, so I have two picks this week. Um, I don't want to pick Code Brawl because it's been picked uh, before, way back when. Uh, but uh, I did write the Code Brawl challenge this week, and it's kind of a neat just uh, play around with uh, Ruby and, and what you can do kind of thought experiment. Don't take it too seriously. I've already gotten uh, messages about, well, Ruby 1.9 makes this significantly better. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. Let's let's see if we can make it even better. You know, what can we do? Uh, but the, this week's uh, Code Brawl challenge is uh, to find a way to uh, handle situations where methods need to take multiple blocks. Uh, so obviously this was inspired by my recent playing around with Smalltalk, you know, where uh, in Smalltalk passing multiple blocks to a method is nothing. They do it all the time. Uh, in Ruby, we don't do that because the syntax wasn't really designed for that. So uh, it's a fun little quiz experiment. There's already been like uh, 12 people who submitted for it. So uh, it's kind of fun. So I, I think you guys should check it out. And my other pick uh, for this week is a game I've been kind of hooked on this week which is called Space Chem, C-H-E-M. Um, and it's, it, it, on the surface, it's about, like, um, uh, combining molecules and bonding them and stuff like that. Uh, but actually, you'll, you'll find as you get into it, it's kind of a lot like, um, it's kind of a visual programming environment, and you're using these various instructions, and you're having to wait on things uh, to happen before you can do other things, and... It's almost it's really similar to how a processor processes instructions, uh, so kind of an optimizing thing. Uh, it, it's it's totally been eating my free time. So uh, this is a fun game to play with for uh, programmers. So I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. All right, thanks, James. Um, go ahead, Josh. Okay, so uh, let's see. I'm, this isn't a great week for picks for me, but I'll do my best. Uh, so. Uh, one of my picks is uh, Marcel Molina, uh, who's at Twitter and used to do Rails Core. Uh, he put, answered a question on what are the good books to learn object-oriented programming. And I just, I really liked his answer. He uh, had a good selection of books. I've 
read most of these books. They're they're classics, and you know if you have if you're not at least familiar with them, uh, I urge you to become so. So uh, that's a that uh, and by, by the way, Quora has been turning out to be much more interesting than I thought it would be. So I'll, I'll just have that as my uh, 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 ancillary pick on that one. <laughs> and then the, the other one, and I'm totally cheating here because James turned me on to this site, is thisiswhyimbroke.com. Uh, so <laughs> it, it's uh, just basically completely bizarre stuff that um, bizarre. if you had... Did you mean amazing uh, yes, I meant amazing, completely amazing stuff. <laughs> that uh, that uh, if you had infinite money, you would buy all of it. <laughs> so yeah, everything from the uh, the sandals that leave uh, animal footprints to R two D two beanie caps. Um, it's uh, my my. I think my favorite though is the uh, hoodie with a picture of a raptor, uh, and you cross your arms and make a, a mouth with your elbows. So awesome. If I had a child, I would buy that for him. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to do my fix real quick because I can hear my two-year-old coming up the stairs crying. Um, so one pick is Teleport. I don't know if I've uh, brought this up before, but Teleport is an app that allows you to share screens between your computers and uh, is, is super handy. And uh, the the other pick, um, I, I've gotten – I've been spending a lot of time with my uh, father-in-law and uh, there's a store out here. I don't know if it's all across the country or just out here. It's called Harbor Freight, and it's a tool store. And I've been buying all kinds of hardware, not computer hardware, like real hardware that you use to fix stuff with. And uh, so uh, I've been I've been going out there and buying more crap than my wife would like me to. So um, th- th- those are my picks, and I'm sorry to have rushed them, but um, I don't want my kids screaming on the podcast, so... Um, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and, uh, I just want to thank the panel for coming again. Uh, again, we have Avdi Grimm. Happy hacking. Uh, James Edward Gray. This is definitely not an awkward goodbye. Um, Josh Susser. Um, goodbye. (laughs) I'm Charles Maxwood. Um, if you want to get the podcast, you can find it in iTunes. Just search for Ruby Rogues. Uh, We're definitely in there. Leave us a review if you like the show. Uh, You can also leave comments on the blog at rubyrogues.com. If you have suggestions for the podcast, you can uh, go to rubyrogues.com and click request a topic. And uh, we've we've been trying to consider those and figure out which ones we want to do. Next week, we're going to be talking about logging. And uh, we have, is it Tim Peace coming? Yes. And uh, so we'll we'll be doing that um, this week. We're going to we were going to be talking to Corey Haynes, but uh, something came up, so we'll probably reschedule that. So uh, keep an ear out for that one as well. Thanks.